Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. Trust, social solidarity, these seem to be commodities that are in short supply. New polling suggests not just declining institutional trust among Canadians, but an undercurrent of anger that threatens our democratic life. So in a moment, we'll be joined by Sean Spear, who among the many hats he wears, is editor-at-large of the new Canadian media outlet called The Hub. It focuses on the work of think tanks and public policy. The Hub has published... Uh, the poll that I just mentioned. But first, I want you to hear this. Now we often have to write one page out of five pages on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has no basis on how we do science. It has no basis on the outcome. And it's very specious at best. And I've actually lost research funding purely based upon my failure to write a good DEI statement. That's McGill University chemistry professor Pat Kambapati speaking out on the issue of academic freedom, which is uh, broadly related to issues of trust and the direction of Canadian culture. Now, that is coming up a little later in this podcast in Peter Stockland's Field Report. But first, without any further delay, let's dive right into this latest polling published by The Hub with the editor-at-large, Sean Spear. Sean, I found the polling that you've released through the hub. Very interesting. There's so much to dive into here and I want to get into it in a moment, but I do first want to talk a little bit about the hub. Just give us the the bird's eye view of what it is that you're hoping to do with the hub and where we can find you. Great. Well, thanks, Daniel, for having me on the program and giving me an opportunity both to talk about um, the, the, the proprietary polling that we've released, as well as the hub and its mission. Um, for, first, first, first off, uh, listeners can, can find us at thehub.ca. And what they'll find there is a, a mix of different forms of content, including long form essays, some journalistic reporting, curated content from across the, the web. But our ultimate goal is to deliver um, to our audience uh, a, a mix of ideas and, um, and subject matters, all with the focus on um, debating and reconceptualizing a different and better future for Canada. We think if there is a gap in Canada's media ecosystem, um, it is a platform that is really focused on the future, that there's a, a, a tendency um, to focus on the short term. There's a tendency to, to be consumed by hyperpartisan. There's a tendency to sometimes fall victim to sensationalism. Um, and we're sort of pushing back against those currents and instead um, serving as a platform where Canadians of, of good faith and goodwill can come and um, take on some of the big questions about culture, or economics, technology, geopolitics, and so on, um, but really rooted um, in the idea that uh, we can be authors of our future, um, but to do so, we need to we need to debate the different conceptions of, of Canada's future and ultimately the steps that we need to take individually and collectively to to realize that different and better future. And so if people are sick and tired 
of of some of the the, the things that I mentioned earlier and and want a place uh, with an elevated discussion um, that will draw on you know some of the rich work being done at think tanks like Cardis and and thinkers and writers from a, kind of across the country, then please come to the hub.ca. Uh, we, we hope that you'll uh, find our, our content interesting and challenging, and ultimately uh, will serve to improve the, the public discourse in Canada. Sounds great. Sounds like you're taking the, the long view on a lot of issues, which is perfect for the long way. Uh, Sean, um, that, 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 that's great. So the hub.ca uh, is where people, by the way, will be able to see all about uh, the polling that we're just about to, uh, to to discuss. When it comes to the polling, there's one finding that I found very striking, and that's this one, that 77% of the respondents report being very angry about what's happening in Canada. You asked this in January, if I'm not mistaken. So we're we're picking up some of the sentiment that was, I guess, at the beginning of the year. What does that finding tell you? How can you put that in context for us? Well, let me just start by saying, you know, we've been honored um, at the Hub to be able to partner with Public Square, a, a polling company in Canada, to conduct a, a series of polls on people's feelings about the state of our country, the state of our politics, the state of our institutions, and their perceptions of the future. Uh, and, and these findings uh, reflected in, in polling that we'll be releasing um, um, over the, the coming days and weeks, um, you know, in our minds, reinforce the need for something like the hub to elevate the discourse, to um, orient the discussion to the future, to try to speak to Canadians in, in an aspirational way and push back against some of the, 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 the negative sentiments and, and frustrations and, and zero-sum thinking um, that's increasingly reflected in our politics and our culture and indeed in the findings um, uh, of, of today's, um, today's polling. You mentioned uh, a particular finding um, that you know, something approaching three quarters of Canadians are uh, describe themselves as angry. You know, I, I think that that finding, you know, ought to cause a degree of introspection amongst our political leaders, amongst our business leaders, amongst our cultural leaders, our religious leaders. You know, what has what has happened um, to the um, kind of sense of of civic spirit? of the sort of aspiration that really has been at the heart of the Canadian project. Uh, how have we gotten to a place where, um, you know, Canadian Canadians are increasingly marked by anger and not by, um, you know, sort of aspiration and, 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 and a, a good feeling about the, the trajectory our country's on. Um, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways that particular finding is an indictment of, of, you know, a number of institutions and, and hopefully it's a catalyst for the type of positive aspirational conversation that we want to uh, enable at the hub. Do you have a sense of what is at the root of that anger? It couldn't all be just one thing. There must be several factors, I would imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. These types of things risk being overdetermined. I, I, I mean, the, the elephant in the room, of course, is the COVID-19 crisis, and um, which, which as, as we're having this conversation, is not only ongoing, but you know, in some ways seems to be uh, deteriorating. Here in the province of Ontario, we're, we're, we're about to experience another round of 
stay-at-home orders, you know, which will mean um, business closures, which will mean um, prolonged distance between family members. Um, so it, there's no doubt um, that um, that reflects in, in large part, um, you, you know, the economic and social and public health um, uh, ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic. But I don't think that's all, Daniel. You know, one of the other um, um, findings in the polling, which I think is related, is that um, almost four in 10 Canadians say that they anticipate that the, the, the future will be worse off um, than their parents. Um, just to put that in context, that is more Canadians with that view than Americans or um, or those living in the United Kingdom. So um, Canadians are, according to this polling, more pessimistic about the future than others across the Anglosphere. And I think it's a combination of that um, anxiety and pessimism about the future combined with the immediacy of the pandemic and the, and the consequences that's had for individuals and businesses and households um, that is fueling this sense of, of frustration and anger um, that I, you know, it, it seems to me ought to be um, the, the, uh, the top priority for those who are leading um, our public and private institutions. I think w one of the one of the other findings that can provide a little bit of color and perhaps help to explain some of what we're seeing here is the one that, that shows that 29% of respondents agree that they feel threatened by people who don't share their values. And that, that too, I find rather striking because, you know, it, it's one thing to disagree and, you know, you, you find two people in a room and you will, will all will disagree on something uh, 33 million plus Canadians, you know, we're, we're going to disagree amongst ourselves on a whole host of things. But disagreement is okay. Um, here, though, I think there's there's a finding of something that's 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 deeper and that I would find a little worrying when you feel threatened by people who don't share your values, because either you're feeling they're going to impose their values or their will on you uh, or that the vital interests that you have that are in, that are important to you or to your community or your family are under threat in some way. And it's not usually a sentiment that anyone I think would associate with Canada and yet there it is. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Daniel. And you know, one of the things that uh, Cardis uh, I think is so powerfully championed over the years is um, its commitment to pluralism. Um, and I think, you know, Canadians, Ought to be grateful to Cardis and its um, team of scholars and thinkers for um, its work on the imperative of of pluralism in Canada. Um, You're too kind. <laughs> and it, it seems to me, Daniel, that um, you know what that finding shows is that there is a you know a sizable share of the population that is not you know is is concerned about the country's commitment to pluralism. Um, and, and I, you're right to be worried about that. You know, it seems to me that we're embarking on um, a great experiment of, of, um, that will test, um, you know, the kind of strength of Canadian commitment to liberalism and pluralism. And that, of course, is, you know, our country's growing diversity, growing heterogeneity, which is a, a source of strength, as the prime minister often says. Um, but th this experiment will only be successful if we remain committed to pluralism, because, you know, by definition, growing diversity will mean a growing multitude of 
perspectives and faiths and values and so on. And, and this experiment will only ultimately work um, if we renew our commitment to pluralism. And so, you know, not only has Cardis, I think, done tremendous work in, in trying to uh, restore and, and recommit um, our national commitment to pluralism, but that's something, you know, very much at the heart of what we want to achieve, achieve at, at, the, at the hub. The, as you say, on many of the, the first order questions that we're going to be grappling with as a society moving forward about, you know, the tensions between equality and liberty, liberty uh, the tensions around uh, economic efficiency and equity, about, um, you know, differences across regions, differences across faiths, um, you know, uh, grappling with some of the challenges associated with um, the rise of technology. All of these questions are going to require um, that, that these debates occur on a foundation of, of pluralism and, and tolerance. And, you know, hopefully between the work that Cardis is doing and the work that we'll be doing at the hub, that we'll be able to um, inject um, into uh, Canadian uh, public discourse, um, you know, the foundational importance of, of pluralism. Intimately related to the issue of pluralism, Sean, is the issue of free speech. And it's it's a dicey one because there are aspects of, you know, there are limits on every freedom, right? We know this. Uh, and in your own polling, we, we see like 85% of respondents say someone who makes racial slurs should be stopped from speaking. Um, you know, not that's not really that controversial. Uh, to me, eighty-five uh, percent say there should be no tolerance of religious extremism. Again, not a controversial statement. But what I do find a little more interesting is fifty-two percent of respondents saying radical ideas should be censored for the public good, and fifty percent agreeing that someone who expresses offensive ideas, whatever those ideas might be, and I think that that's a little undefined should lose their job. And that, that I think, gets us into some much more dangerous territory in terms of our ability to express ourselves. It's one thing when we're talking about racial slurs or, you know, religious extremism. It's quite another when we talk generally about radical ideas or whatever an, an, an offensive idea might be. We can't even agree amongst ourselves on what's offensive. As you said at the outset, uh, Daniel, this is a, a tricky question. Um, you know, I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, you know, I think we want to be careful about narrowing the uh, ideas and perspectives that are permitted in the public square. Um, um, you know, as you say, we may be able to agree at, at some level on certain ideas that are so odious that they ought to be excluded from or marginalized from popular discourse. Um, but there are a whole host of ideas that, you know, may, may not represent majority views, um, um, but, you know, belong and deserve a voice in, in the public square. And I think we should be cautious about um, making judgments that would exclude those perspectives um, um, from, from being re reflected in our our politics and our and our and our professional lives and popular discourse more, more generally. I mean, I think if you, one of the takeaways for me from the disruptive politics of you know the past several years across the Western world is that we need to be um, 
we need to be focused on ensuring that our politics are representative and responsive. And when um, we fail to ensure that our rep politics are representative and responsive, um, you know, people will ultimately um, choose political vehicles that have a whole host of problems, um, but that purport to be representative and responsive to their views and perspectives. And so I think the best anecdote to um, and to that type of politics of disruption is a, a commitment to uh, representative and responsiveness in, in, in mainstream politics. Um, but the second point I would make, and I, I think you'd agree with me on this, is that I worry sometimes that, um, you know, it's one thing to have a commitment to free speech, which, uh, you know, which is important to me personally, and I think will be important to the hub um, as, as a, a, a platform for debate, debate and discourse. Um, but we also need to be committed to civility, to thoughtfulness. Um, sometimes I, I worry that free speech becomes a, uh, uh, you know, becomes defined as, um, you know, being provocative for provocative, for provocative sake or being offensive for uh, offensiveness sake. Um, you know, I think we can find a way to um, commit ourselves to the principle of free speech and at the same time do that in a way, um, you know, that maintains civility and thoughtfulness and, and decency. And, you know, that's something that's a balancing act that I know Cardis um, pursues both uh, through its scholarship and also um, at comment and some of its other auxiliary um, platforms and, and certainly a, a balance that we'll try to achieve at the hub. You know, if you, if you come back to my main point, which is the hub wants to be a platform where Canadians of good faith can come and debate a different and better future for Canada. We believe fundamentally in debate, um, but it, it's a debate that's rooted in civility and, and thoughtfulness. And, um, and it doesn't assume um, that the other side of the debate is bad um, or malevolent simply because um, they, they share a different perspective about issues that are fundamentally complicated. Um, you know, we, we, these are uh, the, the types of issues that we want to be tackling at the hub um, are ones that don't necessarily lend themselves to um, simplistic or um, um, dogmatic um, answers. Well, I mean, I would agree, um, as you suspected I would. Uh, I, do, I, I, I do agree, because when it comes to debate, you can't have debate, or true debate, unless each side respects the other. You can have a shouting match if yes. you disrespect each other. You can talk past each other in, in the case of disrespect, but you can't really have a debate, because a debate involves an exchange of ideas and it opens you up just as it opens up your your conversation partner it it opens you both up to possibly actually changing your mind on something yes which right that becomes um if if you're willing to do it yourself maybe someone else is willing to do that too amen yeah i think that's exactly right and i would just say daniel you know that i mentioned um you know one of the principal underlying ideas of the hub um, is that we, we find ourselves in a sort of paradigmatic moment, that we, we find ourselves at a bit of an inflection point um, in modern history, that 
a lot of our underlying thinking about economics has been challenged um, both by the pandemic, but by a series of other kind of secular trends, including the rise of technology and so on, that we find ourselves in an, a sort of an inflection point culturally um, as uh, our society becomes increasingly secular on one hand, um, but we have um, growing kind of religious diversity on the other hand through immigration and so on, um, that we find ourselves at a bit of an inflection point with regards to demography um, and a whole host of other um, parts of modern life where you know, sort of old thinking doesn't quite lend itself to um, to, to type of answers that we need if we're going to move forward in a, a way that is, you know, enables economic growth and dynamism and, and, and a more richer sense of human flourishing. And so, you know, if you accept that premise, um, then as you say, we're going to need uh, a, a way to um, debate and, 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 try to reason through some of these um, big first order questions that we face as society. And, and that can only be done um, in, in a way that um, is, is, is honest and truthful, um, 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 but at the same time, um, civil and, and thoughtful. And you know, that's ultimately the way to, to move forward as a society. And, and, and you know, it, the polling data um, that we're discussing here signals that Canadians have real apprehensions about our ability to do that. And, you know, I think one of the things we want to do at the Hub is show that that kind of um, um, spirited yet thoughtful debate um, is indeed possible. Well, Godspeed in that mission, Sean. Thank you for joining me on The Long Way. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. And, and thanks um, um, to you and Curtis for, for the work that you do to, to uh, enable that kind of uh, debate uh, in, in our country. Well, as you heard off the top of this episode, there's a real concern in Canada about an erosion of academic freedom in our universities. Field reporter and editor of Convivium.ca, Peter Stockland, brings us that story. On his profile page at Montreal's McGill University, Associate Professor of Chemistry Pat Kambampati describes his research area as follows. The semiconductor quantum dot is arguably the central material in the nanoscience revolution. The quantum dot is a nanoscale semiconductor placing itself both literally and conceptually between the microscopic molecular limits traditionally studied by chemists and the macroscopic bulk limit studied by physicists. In order to explore the basic science of quantum dots, we develop and implement sophisticated laser spectroscopies to interrogate these materials in real time. Those of us who don't know a quantum dot from a polka dot, or a semiconductor from an orchestra conductor, might be inclined to say, back to your laser spectroscopy lab, maestro. But Kambampati bravely leapt the bounds of microscopic molecular limits last week to publicly join a group of McGill academics saying, start the revolution without us when it comes to so-called woke or cancel or social justice warrior culture on campus. The group, which launched online as ThinkSpace, a safe place for reason, under the auspices of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, regards the cultural revolution sweeping North American universities as a macro outcry of a decided minority of political voices. Minor in number they might be, but Kambampati says their influence has reached into every corner of McGill, including his research lab. 
It is, he says, shaking foundational trust in the university as a place where questions can be freely asked, debate engaged, knowledge pursued, and where reason, not feelings, prevails. Our objective is to do science that produces a return on investment to the Canadian taxpayer because it's expensive. Well, lo and behold, we've replaced the benefits to the country to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now we often have to write one page out of five pages on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has no basis on how we do science. It has no basis on the outcome, and it's very specious at best. And I've actually lost research funding purely based upon my failure to write a good DEI statement. The irony is not lost over me based upon my race, my group, my family, everything thereof couldn't fit, couldn't possibly fit any external criteria better, but I've actually lost funding based upon my desire to focus on the excellence of the researcher and the diversity of experience rather than diversity of skin color. And it's not just the formalities of that curiously neglected science called academic grant writing that is at stake. Kambampati says he's watched since 1988 as educational culture at the grade school level shifted in ways that produce the current generation of trigger warning advocates and what he calls grievance studies that color far outside the lines of traditional scholarship. The way I see it is the university created education schools. The education schools created teachers. The teachers educated the children. And then lo and behold, those children showed up at university. Well, that took a cycle of about a generation. So the, the, the current educational practices were probably created around 1990, which means by about 2010, you start to see those students. Those students are the ones we saw in 2010 who were unable to think critically, but were only able to emote, feel, and talk about their feelings and how they needed safe spaces and trigger warnings. And then they had a revolution when we, didn't, when we wanted to actually have normal critical thought. So that's what happened by between 2010 and 2015. Those were the students that were undergoing the revolution every single time Jordan Peterson was showing up to campus. The ThinkSpace group plans a formal launch when the McGill term begins again in September. And Kambampati hopes there will be a series of public forums to explore the issues involved. Meanwhile, they'll be spot on the dot, using their online presence and wider media exposure to restore trust in the academy. Nothing less than the university's role in democratic life itself is at stake, he says. My feeling when I talk to my colleagues and my PhD students is that most people are unhappy in science and STEM with the culture that has taken place in academia, and we want to see change. It's just most people are either unaware of it, or they're too afraid, or they're too busy to yeah, the institution is an incredibly important institution and it's delicate. Democracy is delicate and precious. So is academia. And in academia, the delicacy comes from the ability to think freely and speak freely. For the long way, I'm Peter Stockland. Thanks, Peter. I'd never heard of Quantum Dots before, but that report, I have to say, was spot on. Interesting little factoid I found out in Wired magazine. Uh, one of the functions of quantum dots is to enhance the color of LED televisions. Who knew? Don't ever tell me that the long way is not educational. Well, I know that the, the issues are serious, especially things like academic freedom and pluralism, but I'm hoping that we can still smile our way to the other side. 
So thanks for joining me on this episode of The Long Way. If you've got thoughts to share, send them to media at cardus.ca. And don't forget to like, subscribe, or follow The Long Way wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Daniel Prusilides. Thanks for listening. 